Hey listeners, it's time for another episode of Tech Policy Grind. I think you're really going to like this one, and it marks the first in a multi-part series we'll be doing on Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and how they're barreling into the world of internet law and policy. Today, Joe and I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Eniat Chowdhury. Eniat is a fellow with a foundry and is currently pursuing her LLM at UC Berkeley School of Law, taking what has to be the coolest course load for, well, probably anyone that's listening to this show. Join us as we talk about her LLM experience, the value of internships at Wikimedia and the EFF, fundamentals of blockchain technology, and we all share our inner love for, or at least fascination, with CryptoKitties. As always, if you like the show, please stick around to the end. Maybe share the show with a friend if you can't leave a quick review on iTunes. You can follow the show on Twitter at TechPolicyGrind. We hope to see you there. For now, enjoy a nerdy dive into the blockchain rabbit hole with Joe Jerome, myself, Emery Roan, and Eniat Chowdhury. We're joined today by Inia Chaudhary, who is currently a student at the, getting her LLM in Law and Technology at the Bolt School of Law. Uh, so, Inia, thanks for joining today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So, we tend to ask people to start um, on every episode of Tech Policy Grind um, what they're grinding for in tech policy, what they're interested in. So, what, what's up? So I think for me, what excites me about being in the tech law and policy space is just, I think the fact that there are so many emerging technologies that are coming up right now. And I, I'm located in San Francisco, so especially in the Bay Area. Um, and there's not a lot of policy out there that deals with these technologies or, or even laws for that matter. So I think being able to like help create some of this policy, just be it in the form of like academia at school or at internships and actually like helping move along the process of creating laws for these new technologies is what really gets really gets me interested or excited. So, so, so I guess my, my immediate follow-up question is um, a lot of times I feel like when you're talking to people, innovators or people in the tech space, they're pretty anti-regulation. Um, regulation is going to stomp innovation and destroy it all. Um, is there an emerging tech space that you think needs to be regulated? Um, you know, Are you one of the, these people who are joining with Elon Musk who suggests we need to put down a boom <laughs> hammer on artificial intelligence? Oh, it's Just so interesting that you mentioned that. Um, yesterday, actually, so we had class. Um, I, I'm doing this class called Law Tech and uh, Scholarship Seminar at Bolt. And we talked about artificial intelligence for two hours. And we basically discussed regulatory policy in some detail, I guess. So I guess the way I feel about it is there's three stages of AI, right? Um, I guess I'm going to explain the three stages. There's ANI, which is artificial narrow intelligence. And then there's AGI, which is artificial general intelligence. And then there's ASI, which is artificial super intelligence. So um, in each of these three stages, AI behaves in a pretty different way. So for example, in the ANI stage, an AI might be only like doing a specific task that it's being told to do versus in the AGI stage where AI is basically acting like a human being and making decisions like a human can. Um, and in the artificial superintelligence stage, I think the AI is supposed to be a little smarter than humans or like a lot smarter. These are just like the discussions that are happening in the AI space. And I feel like a lot of people don't agree with these like delineations as such. But um, the reason I bring that up is because you asked about regulation and I feel like if we're going to have AI out in the world and 
like there's different types, there's different ways to regulate them, right? Like we can't regulate something that's doing a specific task in the same way that we can regulate something that's like working akin to a human. So I mentioned that because um, let's say you tell artificial intelligence, there's two types right now, ENI and AGI, to basically eliminate violence. So because ENI is just like, you know, programmed in this specific way of just eliminating violence and doesn't have any more input or like, I don't know, it's not programmed in a way where it can know more than what it's being told to do i think what it might end up doing is oh hey they told me to eliminate violence so one way to do it would be to eliminate anything that's causing violence which would be humans right so that's bad obviously and (laughs) yeah um, yeah it's like super horrific to even think about but yeah and then agi which actually like depends on neural networks or at least we're getting to that stage would basically think about other ways to do it or better ways to do it um, without actually like hurting humans. So I think if we are going to think about regulation in the artificial intelligence space, I think it's super important just because we don't want to get to a stage where um, like artificial intelligence is smarter than us and we don't know what the hell we're doing in terms of like policy. I think I I do agree with Elon Musk because I think it's better to be proactive in this stage rather than reactive. Stephen Hawking agrees too. I don't know. It's just some yeah. smart people. Can we well, talk a so, little? Oh, go ahead, Emery. I was going to say, before we dive into AI, I, I really wanted to jump back onto your LLM um, and talk about the, the process sure. of getting an LLM and the choices of why you went for your LLM uh, after already having your law degree and sort of what that journey was like. So I think um, what happened for me was I graduated from law school and moved to the Bay Area. And I worked at the Wikimedia Foundation with Anisha. And after that, I worked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So those were my two fellowships over the course of a year. And I realized when I was working at these organizations that, um, like I said, there are so many emerging technologies. Um, and a lot of the times I would be researching issues and realize that there's not a lot of policy that goes behind or there, there isn't policy that is um, in place for a lot of emerging technology. So I'd taken all the basic classes in law school, which dealt with intellectual property. Like I took copyrights, patents, but I never actually got to take classes um, that dealt with technology as such. So for example, at Bolt, I took classes um, titled blockchain, like I'm taking a blockchain class right now with engineering and MBA students. I took classes called FinTech and Social Media last semester, um, Snap, Google, and Fox, like corporate governance at controlled companies. So those are classes that are very different from what you get as a basic like JD student. So um, I decided to apply because I realized that I'm super interested in this area and that I wanted to pursue it further and um, applied to Bolt, obviously, because technology, Silicon Valley, like Bay Area, what better place to be, right? So um, luckily I got in and um, it's been fascinating. Like I wouldn't have it any other way. I would do it again if I had to, if I got the chance, basically, because I feel like how many years? it's just one year. So um, yeah, so I graduated in May. Oh, exciting. Congratulations. That's coming up. 
Well, you said that you interned at both Wikimedia and EFF. I think those are two individually each are dream internships for law students, especially, and, and they're super competitive. Um, I We have talked on the show before repeatedly about the importance of internships for early career professionals and you know how important it is to get out there and hustle. But do you want to talk about the experience of, I guess, applying to EFF and Wikimedia and how rewarding of an experience it was, or would you recommend it to other people? Oh, yeah, definitely recommend it to everyone, basically, in law school. So um, the experience for me was, so when I was in my last semester of law school, um, I applied to Wikimedia to be a fellow. And um, the way it worked for me was I had two rounds of interview interviews, and um, one was with the uh, legal director at the time, and uh, the other one was with just another legal counsel. So um, they asked me, you know, just like how if you work for a tech company, you have technical questions. So they asked me basically IP questions and just to test my knowledge of like how well I know IP or tech law. And they also asked me about like my past experience and uh, what I anticipate myself doing in the future and whether I was like really interested in it. So it was actually a pretty rewarding experience because they gave me this like hypothetical, uh, which made me think about uh, like IP law in a way that I hadn't thought about in law school, just taking a class at law school. So it was super cool. The interview process was really fascinating. And um, the second round was very similar as well. So after two rounds, you finally find out like whether you get it or not in a couple of weeks after that. So that was the process with Wikimedia. And um, with EFF, I applied um, when I'd already graduated from law school. And um, it was very similar. It was just um, instead of two interviews, it was one one interview, but it was with uh, a panel. So it was two people. And they asked me basically very similar questions, my background, and um, talked to me about IP issues, about tech issues, and policy. So, and yeah, I would highly recommend everyone in law school who's even thinking about working in the IP or the tech space or the policy space to basically apply to these two internships. Super rewarding. How long were you at each of those internships? Was it was it just a semester each? And did you do it back to back in your 2L year or your 3L year? I, I'm always interested so, in the mechanics of that because it's so tough to fit in as much as you need to fit in in law school. So um, I actually uh, worked at Wikimedia for four months and I worked right after I graduated there. So I graduated from law school and moved to the Bay Area, worked at Wikimedia. And then right after that, I worked at EFF. So it ended up being a year for like if you combined both of them. And then I went back to um, school. I went back to Bolt. So that was my process. Um, I did other things my 2L and 3L years. So my 2L summer, I was at the San Francisco City Attorney's Office um, doing just workers' compensation litigation and taking that. Or, or one super interesting thing about, like, if you work for the City Attorney's Office in San Francisco is um, they let you take depositions. Um, at least the workers' compensation team does, which is super, super, like, um, fascinating as a 2L, like, summer associate, I guess, um, to have taken a deposition while you're still in law school because – a lot of people don't even get to do it like their first year out of law school. So it's super rewarding. So we talked a little bit about your LLM earlier and the exciting classes that you're taking. Honestly, today, though, we are uh, we brought you on to talk about blockchain for, I think, part two or maybe part one of our two-part blockchain cryptocurrencies episodes of Tech Policy Grind. 
And so you mentioned that you you're specifically you're taking classes specifically on blockchain in school. I think that's right. That's really cool. What is what is the academic buzz around blockchain right now is what what are the people in universities saying and about the potential? So I think everyone's super excited about it. No one really quite understands it um, (laughs) because, you know, there's so much to learn about, like blockchain and Bitcoin, like they're not the same thing. And it's, you know, like being in law school, you're pretty used to doing like law stuff and not technology stuff like blockchain. So anyway, my point is everyone is super interested, be it at the undergrad level or at the graduate level or like even schools that have nothing to do with like tech or law or policy are super interested in it. So um so there there these the way Bolt works at least is when students go up to professors. So we have the center called the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, BCLT. Um and we have um just amazing faculty um, just directing it and just being part of it. So I think when students want something, they go and tell faculty like, hey, um, this is an emerging area in the space and we really want to learn about it. So why don't you like create a class around it? So um, so this blockchain class was actually um, the brainchild of three professors. One was at the business school, one is at the computer science school, and one is obviously at the law school. Cool. So I think, And yeah. what are the names? So Gregory LeBlanc is at the business school, Don Song at the computer science school, and Adam Sterling at the law school. Was this your first exposure to blockchain in class, or were you interested in this beforehand? I actually got interested my 1L year. So my 1L year elective was cyber law, or it was just back in 2014. Right. So um, it was cyber law, and we talked about the Silk Road and blockchain and Bitcoin. And in the summer of 2015, when I was at the city attorney's office, um, in San Francisco, I thought about buying Bitcoin because at that point it had dropped all the way down to two hundred dollars. Um, and but I didn't end up buying it, so I don't no. own any Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. Yeah, unfortunately. I find it but, so much um, easier to be like interested in the mechanics and the science and the technology if you're not constantly freaking out about how much money you're losing. Exactly. <laughs> but then I'm much. just saying that as a broke, you know, broke guy here, so. <laughs> Right. I mean, I I feel like speculating on blockchain definitely would help you, you know, live and eat in San Francisco, which is not exactly the cheapest. Oh, yeah. It's about the only thing that can, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I just decided not to buy it because I was still in law school. And at that point, we didn't have like an easy exchange like Coinbase. So um, I would basically be like holding it on my laptop, which I didn't want to do because I was still in law school taking notes. And if I left it at the law school, it would be, yeah, not so good. Well, so can I can I ask a, a dumb follow up question there? So you're hinting sure. at the fact that the, the, the Bitcoin would have been on your actual personal computer. And then you hinted at Coinbase for people out there who, like me, don't understand this landscape. What exactly is Coinbase? So Coinbase is this exchange that you can use, and the way it works is um, you hook up your bank account or your credit card or your debit card, and you can buy cryptocurrency, so you can buy Ethereum, um, Bitcoin, and Litecoin on it. And you can just basically use either your credit card or your bank account to directly purchase it. And um, the tricky part is once you do buy cryptocurrency you have to keep it secure so you have to have a digital wallet to put it in and um that's essentially just how like coinbase works but if you have any specific questions about like 
anything else, well, in the, I'd you, be happy to. She hit on an excellent point that is that, um, you know, when the, the news hits inevitably that, you know, oh, this such and such cryptocurrency exchange was hacked and everyone lost hundreds right. of thousands of dollars in Bitcoin and they were fools for investing in Bitcoin. That There's a saying in the cryptocurrency world that if you don't own the keys, you don't own the coins which is the, the tendency right. to treat these exchanges as the trusted middleman that they are and just sort of keeping your funds at these exchanges um, and never sort of owning them. So Anayat was bringing up the great point that, you know, if you are interested in investing in this stuff, make sure that you have thought very carefully about how you are securing it and on which devices you're holding your coins. Because, again, right. you're holding the private public key pair. Right. So it's it's because like this whole thing is based on cryptography and which is what Emery's talking about, the public versus private key. Um, so you you hear of these stories in the news where these people mined Bitcoin back in like 2011 or something, and they just basically got rid of the hard drive that they stored it on. And it's it, in December, at least it was worth millions of dollars. So if you had like a thousand Bitcoin lying around in a hard drive that no longer exists or you don't know where it is, like you basically lost a lot of money, right? Because cryptocurrency was worth a lot back in December 2017. It's not to say that Bitcoin was hacked, which is, of course, what the exactly. narrative is always like, oh, cryptocurrencies are vulnerable and you could lose thousands of dollars. No, it's we brought this up right. in the, the other show. But, you know, it, the whole idea is to shift the responsibility onto the individual away from middlemen. So individuals right. are really good at losing their own data, it turns out. Right. <laughs> and when that happens, there's no... Yeah regulatory body to enforce it or to protect them exactly joe you had a really good question that we were talking about before the show started about the energy consumption needed to mine cryptocurrencies and do you want to talk about that do you have any thoughts on sure the, the energy issue yeah i think so so i think the reason bitcoin uses so much energy is just rooted in the way that it operates um at the bitcoin network operates so um as you, as we already talked about, a digital currency like Bitcoin is not controlled by a central bank or a commercial clearinghouse, but it's uh, by a network of users who expend large amounts of computing power and thus energy, building a blockchain of Bitcoin payment transactions. So, um, in order to actually do this, um, the Bitcoin network relies on miners who mine this Bitcoin, and they have to basically perform a large number of computer calculations to um, track and verify transactions. So, it's akin to solving complex puzzles to obtain rewards. So. As Bitcoin becomes more popular and more valuable, obviously, there's more incentive for more miners to get on the system and to keep mining more Bitcoin. So that obviously means more energy usage. But I think um, in so far, obviously, there's been websites that have said that the amount of energy being used is akin to like the amount of energy that countries like Denmark or um, Ireland use. But I think... If we think about it, it's still a pretty new technology and moving forward, there are a lot of things that can change. So, for example, Ethereum is thinking of changing its proof of work algorithm to an, like a more energy efficient proof of stake algorithm called Casper. And that change would actually minimize energy consumption. And um, so under proof of work, um, the algorithm rewards miners who solve these mathematical problems. Um, with the proof of stake, the creator of a new block, block is basically chosen in a deterministic way. So, um, and it's it's dependent on wealth and um, it's defined as a stake and there's no block reward in Ethereum, unlike 
Bitcoin where there is a block reward. So, so this is where I, I get so confused, right? So we have all of these dueling competing cryptocurrencies. I guess the market will eventually choose a winner here. Um, mm -hmm. But it just seems like I guess I'm <laughs> so I guess I, I want to start mining for cryptocurrencies. Do you have which where do I start? Who should, should I be mining for Bitcoin? Well, you need what a time machine and a graphics card <laughs> from 2011. Uh. <laughs> Basically, yeah, I think I mean, mining would be one way to go about it. But I think at this point, I mean, Bitcoin is already using, if you want to be energy efficient, Bitcoin is already using so much energy and there's already so many miners on the system. I think one way for you to start would be to, like, do Ethereum instead. Because, okay. one, um, it's not as popular as Bitcoin just because Bitcoin was the first in the market and um, everyone thinks about cryptocurrencies as being Bitcoin, especially people who haven't heard of it before. But Ethereum... Um, or Litecoin even. Litecoin um, seems to be a version of Bitcoin that's better than Bitcoin, or at least that's what they say. So with Ethereum, it's not just a cryptocurrency. It, it incorporates this concept called smart contracts. So um, and with their goal of being energy efficient, I think that would be a good way to start. So maybe you guys can both talk about this question. My, so any change to the system, how is that determined, right? So I, I've heard of like oh. these cryptocurrencies get forked because people can't agree <laughs> on how big the block is going to be or any of this stuff. And so now we've got two competing versions. And, and I, I guess I just that's where I sort of get super confused, where I'm just I'm interested in this. I don't know where to start. What happens if I start putting all my money and energy and computing resources into a cryptocurrency that Imagine okay. if an open source community suddenly was a government. That's how I like to think about it, because it is essentially all of the policing, all the decisions are made in the same model as open source software development, where we have developers that have been working on this for a long time, and not all the developers agree, but this batch of developers works on this group of Bit this part of Bitcoin, and then other developers disagree fundamentally with it, so they say, oh, well, we're going to make a, a different kind of Bitcoin that, you know, uses almost all the same technology, but is sure. fundamentally different in a different way. And then those people start uh, just trying to convince everyone to use their version of Bitcoin. And if enough people start using it, then the other version of Bitcoin is sort of depreciated. Is that about right, Anaya? Because I'm not sure if I... Uh... Yeah, I, I feel like you encapsulated it pretty well. So, Emery, you mentioned, I, I guess this is a bad segue, but I'll, I'll use it anyway, D discussing, comparing uh, basically a group of open source people as the government well so what role should the government be playing here um obviously we're uh, when you're dealing with cryptocurrencies you're dealing with money whenever you're dealing with money governments are going to get engaged um yeah sure so on february 6th actually the commodity futures trading commission and the u.s security and exchange commission um met together to discuss um the roles like what roles they can play in blockchain virtual currencies and icos so um ICOs being in initial coin offerings. Thank, so, thank you. We use too many acronyms <laughs> on this show. I know. So. <laughs> yeah. We should talk so, a little bit about um, ICOs at some point. <laughs> at some point, yeah. So um, so basically what they talked about was, so Christopher Giancarlo, who's chairman and witness of the CFTC, he basically expressed optimism um, in his testimony when he was talking about blockchain and the decentralized ledger technology. Um 
which is just another word for blockchain essentially. So he basically said that um, like moving forward, digital currencies will obviously require more attentive regulatory oversight in regards to like fraud and manipulation because right now a lot of the um, conversation that is happening about uh, regulation in this space is uh, with respect to like fraud and manipulation because like Emery said, you you hear all of these stories where um, like Bitcoin was basically stolen from your digital wallet. And, um, but anyway, in his conclusion, but, but, he addressed- But isn't that usually, it's the, it's the user's fault, right? I mean, it's, it's, as much as it is anyone's it fault for getting malware, you know, there's tons, you know, it, right. it can be, it's not best practices to keep your cryptocurrency on a laptop that you frequently use for general purposes, because you might, you know, just as, be just as likely to get a malware that could steal that cryptocurrency. I'm not, I'm not going to say that's your fault. That's just sort of- nature of the beast of being on the internet in 2018 Just the way it works yeah so i think what he basically said was essentially boils down to like we are noticing that there's innovation happening in this space and we want to continue a lot allowing this innovation but at the same time we can't ignore like all the fraud and manipulation that's going on so we want to work together with the sec to d develop good practices and at the same time clayton the chairman of the sec was a little bit less excited about virtual currencies and he basically said that from a financial regulatory perspective um, these developments may enable us to better monitor transactions holdings and obligations um, and obviously that will facilitate their regulatory mission including like investor protection because that's what the SEC is obviously about so if I were to boil down what Clayton thinks um, in simple terms, it would be that he said that there seems to be a gradient that starts at ICOs and then there's um, virtual currencies and then there's blockchain. So blockchain is the one that needs the least amount of regulation. And um, in fact, both the SEC and the CTFC encouraged anyone willing to expand on this blockchain technology. Um, ICOs, on the other hand, um, required the most regulation just because, um, you know, just the nature of them. And virtual currencies are somewhere in the middle who, like, they need protection against fraud and market manipulation, but perhaps not as much as ICOs themselves. Well, let's talk about ICOs. It's a good time to unpack ICOs and why, by their nature, they need to be regulated a little more. Sure. Um, so let me just explain what it is. And um, so an ICO, like I said, is initial coin offering. It works very much like an initial public offering or IPOs. Um, but instead of offering shares in a company, the like firm is actually interested in offering digital assets called tokens. So a token sale is basically like a crowdfunding campaign, except it uses the technology behind Bitcoin to verify transactions. So um, for the like, let's take Bitcoin, for example. So the token is literally going to be called Bitcoin. And for Ethereum, it's going to be Ether. So um, I think one of the first ICOs um, to like really hit the headlines was uh, back in May 2016 with the Decentralized Autonomous Organization or the DAO, um, which was basically just a decentralized venture fund built on Ethereum. And um, in that uh, venture fund, investors could use the DAO's tokens to basically cast votes on how to disperse funds, and any profits were supposed to come back to the stakeholders. So and it imploded. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, like a hacker exploited a vulnerability in Ethereum's design and um, stole basically tens of millions of dollars in digital currency. But um, if we take another example, like cloud storage, because everyone loves cloud storage. Um, <laughs> everyone does companies... love cloud storage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So several companies are actually building blockchains um, to facilitate peer-to-peer -peer, uh, buying and selling a storage space. Basically, that could basically challenge companies like Dropbox and Amazon. So um, the tokens in this case are the method of payment for storage. So what happens is a blockchain verifies the transactions between buyers and sellers and serves as a record for their legitimacy. So how exactly this works depends on the project itself. So for example, in Filecoin, uh, which basically broke records recently because it like raised more than 250 million dollars via an ICO. Uh, miners would earn tokens by providing storage or retrieving stored data for users. So um, I think some people think that ICOs can lead to like new exotic ways of building a company, um, and like others are less enthused about it. So it just depends where you fall on the spectrum. Dumb question. Why are the why are these even necessary? Is it just is this to raise revenue or yeah. to get? I think um, so. In in the cloud storage space, it's basically helping these people who don't have storage by giving them storage, right? Um, so I think there may be some charitable reasons that it exists, but I think raising revenue, obviously, because that's just what ICOs do, would be a big one. I think. One of the reasons people actually like ICOs is because for the uh, Filecoin example that I was providing earlier, um, if a company like that gets like very popular all of a sudden, it would basically enrich everyone who holds or mines the token um, rather than like a set group of the company's executives and, and employees. That's the like decentralized principle behind it. So I just yeah wanted to point that out. Do we want to talk about CryptoKitties? I feel like it's a good transition. <laughs> oh, CryptoKitties. I love CryptoKitties. Um, oh, my God. Do you actually know what <laughs> CryptoKitties are? Okay. Yes. Um, so uh, have either of you guys – so it's a game. Have either of you guys played it or know what it – like like know at length what it's about? All I know is just, that my cryptocurrency friend is just like, oh, my God, there are CryptoKitties. This is, this I, is innovation run amok. It's a really exciting, interesting application of cryptocurrencies demonstrating that one of the values of blockchain is to create something that is like uncopyable on the internet. And the idea exactly. of be being able to create unique digital assets is something that has never been able to be done before, and cryptocurrencies okay. is leveraging it. I wouldn't, like, I'm not treating it as an asset or, like, right. something I'm investing in or collecting, but uh, right. it's really so, exciting so, from that do area. either of you have a crypto kitty? I don't, but um, I was super uh, like intrigued when it first came out. So I think they released it right after Thanksgiving in November. So the way they did it was um, it's a game which is centered around breedable, collectible creatures called CryptoKitties, which are actual kittens on the Internet. Um, actual illustrations so, of kittens on the Internet. Yeah, basically. Sorry. Thank you for <laughs> correcting me about that. Um, so they can be replicated, um, taken away or destroyed. Um, so basically think about them like breedable beanie babies for our, our like millennial generation. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like all my friends who are into Pokemon are like itching right. to get a hold of these. And plus there's right. cat fans all over the place. Oh, yeah. Like who doesn't love kitties? So um, so basically the, so they, they call themselves crypto collectibles instead of like cryptocurrency just because you can collect them, you know, like literally. So um, 
they um, don't have a gender. They can play the role of the male or the female. And the basic premise of the game is there's a marketplace and you can either sell your kitten or you can breed it. And the, the reason the breeding part is important is because the whole way that you get more kittens is you breed them and you basically there are these like unlimited number of possible genetic variations that these kittens can go through just because so every 15 minutes uh the creators of crypto kitties actually releases a kitten onto the system and you can either start with one kitten but it's like more advisable to start with two kittens i, I guess because then you can breed them right and create more kittens so the um cool part about it is literally cool so um Every kitty after it breeds needs a cool down time and it takes and it ranges, right? So it ranges from one minute, which is like considered to be super fast to catatonic, which is like at one, like it, wow. it'll take one week before it can breed again. So anyway, that's, that's crypto kitties in a nutshell. Um, the thing that surprised me most, because I do play Pokemon, Ga uh, Pokemon Go, I still play Pokemon Go, is that, um, there's a crypto kitty named Genesis, which has a super fast cooldown time. Um, it's one minute, and it is priced at one hundred and fourteen thousand and four hundred and eighty-one dollars. Wow! So, wow. yeah, yeah. Wow. I don't know if that. What I don't have a good follow-up answer to that. My mouth is just sort of hanging. <laughs> I guess. I mean, there's plenty of dumb things like this in our world. What's the end goal? You just want your perfect family of crypto kitties. Um, it's just a keep. Uh, I mean, you know, I, the value is going to collapse eventually. It's a fad, right? Because there's no underlying utility being given here. It's just an example of a decentralized application. Sure. And sure. the again, I think that it's a really cool use case of like creating irreplaceable digital assets. But yeah, I don't think the end goal is anything other than to just let's see how much money you can spend on our cool kitties until this all goes down the hole. <laughs> No, I was basically going to – I'm basically out of questions. So I was just going to ask um, – so you're interested in this through a class, which is great. I mean, one of I think one of the issues that I think tech policy faces, particularly when it comes to law schools, is a lot of the stuff just isn't being taught yet. Um, but I'm always just curious, you know, all right, what would you recommend I read or get up to speed on to learn more about this? I, the fact that the uh, the SEC was, you know, pontificating that, that was that's actually news to me. Um, is there is there any primary source of news that you're following on cryptocurrencies? So I think so. For me, I am just keeping an eye out for um, like any public statements being released by the SEC. Okay. Uh, so I didn't talk about the Howey test or securities law because I, I feel like I should have talked about it. But anyway. Um, uh, the Howey test is a test which determines um, what constitutes a security, like the definition of a security. So it's basically a four-factor test, right? So the first factor is, is there an investment of money? The second factor is, is there an expectation of profits from the investment? The third factor is the investment of money. Um, is it in a common enterprise? And courts have defined common enterprise in different ways and um, have used a lot of different interpretations. And then basically the last uh, fourth factor is, is any profit that's coming from it, coming from it because of the efforts of a promoter or a third party. So, um, so I think um, section five of the 1933 um, Securities Act basically says that 
um, if you are issuing a security, it should be registered or be exempt from registration. So if it's if it's like not doing that, it violates the Securities Act. So um, I think there's a lot of cryptocurrencies out there that can fall under the definition of what constitutes a security, and there are a lot that don't. So I think you have to be really careful in figuring out whether it's a security that you're dealing with or it's not. And because um, we talked about ICOs, and if you're going to offer it like an ICO, then you either have to register it or be exempt from registration. I think um, the SEC is going to come out with, like I said, I mentioned the hearing on February 16th that happened, or February 6th, I'm sorry, that happened um, between the CFTC and the SEC. I think they're going to come up with the rules um, pretty soon. And they're already like starting to think about it in a really serious manner. So as of right now, like cryptocurrency hasn't been basically in most jurisdictions been declared as illegal. Um, every like jurisdiction is, and, and I'm talking about like countries in Europe and Asia as well. Um, so they're skeptical about it, but they haven't come out and said, hey, you can't do this and this. Basically, every jurisdiction, or like not every, but most jurisdictions agree that as long as you're not doing something illegal, it's okay. But like, they still don't know how to grapple with this issue. So I think, especially in 2018, there's going to be a lot of countries that are going to come out with rules, especially like the SEC, I'm assuming, is going to release a num number of like statements. So I would say keep your eye out on um, the SEC's website because in December 2017, they did something really similar. So My so. last question is, so how do you think – so I, I, I associate Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies with sort of the techno-libertarian anarchist community – how how do you think that this group responds to this influx of, of regulation or at least government interest and oversight? So um, that's a really good question. I think so with anything that started off as being decentralized, including like the Internet in a way. So um, we recently lost um, John Perry Barlow, who created EFF back in like the 1990s. And um, he had written um, this piece, this beautiful piece that I read in my one year of law school called um, A Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And uh, basically he talked about how like the internet is free and that there's no government regulating it and that everyone on the internet is gonna like take care of it. Or maybe I'm saying this completely wrong, but that's what I remember from like back in the day. So I think with anything that starts off that's new and where people feel like uh, they're the ones who, who are gonna take care of it, I think they're obviously like in the beginning, it's going to be very hard for them to come to terms with the idea that um, it's going to be regulated by someone other than them. Because just the way in which Bitcoin works or blockchain works is the miners are the one who are taking care of like or or i guess are policing it in the way that it is currently being utilized so um i think there's going to be pushback at least in the beginning if not in the long term future but i think just because there's so much i guess not so much but there is fraud and manipulation that happens in this space i think um it isn't going to end up being regulated that's just the reality of it so and it is regulated to an extent already, right? I mean, you have to pay capital gains taxes on income yes. that you earn through it. I mean, you can't commit fraud with it. It's still fraud. Right. It's still actionable. Exactly. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Is is there anything, I mean, we always give people the opportunity, is there anything you'd like to plug? How can people reach out to you? Um, if people have other questions about cryptocurrencies, are you are you, are you fielding them? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? Um, you can basically follow me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Um, just search I-N-A-Y-A-T. That's my first name. Um, Chaudhry, C-H-A-U-D-H-R-Y. That's my last name. And um, I would be happy to answer your questions or you can reach me. Um, we have my website. I have a website at nichaudhry.com. So, yeah, happy to answer any questions about cryptocurrencies or blockchain. Great. Well, the last question of the day before we let you go is that we like to ask uh, what our listeners are reading to or what our guests are reading or uh, listening to. Uh, are, are you reading anything interesting that you'd like to share with us or listening to any podcasts? Yeah. So I don't actually read one book at a time. Um, I read multiple books. So I'm actually reading four books right now. <laughs> I'm reading American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Oh, it's so I'm good. Reading... Oh. It's so good. Yeah. The adaptation also, I love by it. the way. Oh. I don't yeah. think season two is going to be very good, but season one was incredible. <laughs> I have a rule, and it's an unfortunate rule because I don't watch the adaptation of anything before I haven't finished the book. Definitely. So I haven't actually seen the show yet. But yeah, I so, know. Don't ask me about Game of Thrones. I don't know. Yeah, anything that, there about we go. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still in the first book of Game of Thrones. I don't know when I'll ever find time to finish that. Yeah, but anyway, I'm reading. You, you Lars predicted Poker. my thought. It was great. <laughs> Yeah, everyone asks me that, and it's <laughs> it's hard. It's been really hard to like stay like the away from great, all the though. rumors. The, the I know. Binge at I'm the end of all of this, oh, you're it. just gonna lock yourself in your apartment for like a, a month. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> Jealous almost. It's gonna happen. Yeah. So, what are the other three books? Sorry, we uh, got sidetracked there. Oh, that's okay. Um, so I'm also reading Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis and um, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson and Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Wow. Very respectful. I'm reading Dune, which is science fiction. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love science fiction. That's that's my favorite genre. So. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Aniat, for joining us today. This has been just a really a, a lot of fun. Uh, I'm sure the panel wishes she could have joined us as well. Um, but uh, with that, I think that we're going to let you go and we're going to say goodbye to our listeners and to keep it tuned right here to Tech Policy Grind for, I guess, our next episode. So thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind and keep your ears peeled for new episodes twice a month on alternating Mondays. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks.